This is the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where we talk about the big political stories of the week. I'm Mike Siluma, and thank you for joining us. Recently, our constitution has been the subject of much debate following a critical opinion piece penned by the tourism minister, Lindiwe Sisulu. So, in this episode of the Politics Weekly, we thought we should invite one of the leaders who participated in the drafting and adoption of the Constitution, struggle veteran, activist, and former Constitutional Development Minister, Mohamed Vali Musa. This icon is racist. I've never, ever been a spy. Can the VBS bank uh, loot? The problem is that pinky. I'll never subject myself to whiteness. I'm listening. Can you have consistency, Honorable Chair? Corruption was an Olympic sport. They will always win gold. This is not a shape. Arms, can you please come I'm in? Of order. Hey, welcome to the Sunday Times Politics Weekly. Uh, thank you very much. A lot of people know you. Uh, in your in your adult days as a minister of uh, of, of uh, constitutional development or minister of environment or in your current uh, incarnation, you know, uh, being an activist in the in the environment in areas of uh, the you know uh, climate change, etc. Um, but your your background, you know, how did you end up in this sphere in politics, if you like? Oh well. Um... I, I don't know whether there's time to go through the whole story, but just to say very briefly, uh, Mike, I was part of the generation that was inspired by the the 1976 uprisings and the, the years before that by the Black Consciousness Movement. Uh, that was a time uh, when young people, particularly students, were taking a stand against apartheid and took upon themselves the attitude that nobody else is going to liberate you, that you have to liberate yourself, and that uh, it is uh, it is better it is better to die on your feet than to live your life on your knees in indignity. So that's really what inspired us. And you know, apartheid was uh, all around us. Nobody could not be affected by it, and so. You know, I, I, I studied, uh, uh, I had to go to, although I was living in Johannesburg, I had to go to study at the University of Durban Westville because they didn't allow Indians to any other university. I graduated in pure mathematics. And uh, after that, uh, I decided to uh, become a full-time political activist throughout the 80s. I didn't do anything other than... Uh, then participate in the struggle, and uh, that was that was what I did, and uh, and uh, and of course joined the ANC in the struggle. Uh, became a leader of the United Democratic Front. I was in the Mass Democratic Movement, and when the ANC was unbanned and uh, and other political parties were unbanned in in 1990, uh, I got involved in the in the settlement talks the negotiations and ultimately in the drafting of the South African constitution. How did you end up being drafted into those negotiations? Well, you know, I, I, uh, uh, when, when, when the political prisoners uh, were first being released, even before the unbanning of the ANC, uh, I had been very closely with uh, the former, the late Walter Sisulu, 
And at the time when the ANC got unbanned, uh, 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 Walter Sisulu had the responsibility of establishing what was called the internal leadership core and establishing the ANC as a political party. And uh, because of my involvement in the United Democratic Front and the mass democratic movement, he drew me in as part of his team. Uh, when, the, when the first uh, uh, conference of the ANC was held after the unbanning in Durban in 1990, I was elected onto the National Executive Committee and onto the National Working Committee. And then I was given the responsibility. My portfolio was the constitutional negotiations. And so from 1990 to 1994, I worked full time on the constitutional negotiations. And then after that, President Mandela appointed me in the cabinet as Minister for Constitutional Development. And then uh, in the second term of democracy, President Mbeki appointed me as Minister for Environment. And after 10 years uh, in Parliament, I decided to not make myself available. Uh, for 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 another term because I thought ten years uh, in Parliament was sufficient. Let's go back to the constitutional negotiations themselves. What led to them? Because I, I suspect it would not just have been out, you know, as a you know as a matter of spontaneous combustion, you know, that people come together and then they decide, ah, no, because we like each other, let's have a conversation about the future of the country. Yes, what happens uh, in, in any situation of conflict, in any struggle, or for that matter, in any war, a point is reached normally where the parties, where one of the parties gains the upper hand and the other party loses. And then they come to the table to talk about the terms of the settlement. Uh, in a, another way of looking at it was that the apartheid regime decided to come to the table to negotiate the terms of their surrender, because actually they were surrendering white minority rule, they were surrendering the apartheid ideology, and what were the terms of, of discussing that. So that was the one element of the negotiations. The other element of the negotiations involved the drafting of the new South African constitution. And at the time, uh, the South African parliament was the apartheid parliament. It was an undemocratic institution, unrepresentative of the people of South Africa. It was only voted in by a minority. And so we needed to discuss the, the, the methodology for the drafting and adopting of a new South African democratic constitution. You could not have an undemocratic Parliament or an undemocratic apartheid government uh, 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 adopting a democratic constitution, it would be a, it would be a contradiction in terms. So the negotiations are about how do we organise democratic elections that are free and fair? How do we choose a constitutional assembly, a group of elected women and men who will then have the mandate from the voters? to draft and adopt a new constitution. So a lot of the negotiations were about that. How do you actually do that? And so that, that took up the bulk of the negotiations. The actual final constitution was then drafted in 19, uh, post-April 1994, 1994, 1995, and 1996. And it was finally adopted 
by the Constitutional Assembly in October 1996 by the Constitutional Assembly, which had a democratic mandate from the voters to do so. Just briefly, who who were the contending parties in those negotiations? I mean, did you have a round table? Did you have a square table? Did you? Yeah. When we were deciding in the early 90s on, on starting the negotiations, there were a number of matters that ne- needed to be cleared up. One was what we referred to as preconditions for the negotiations. All political prisoners should be released. We couldn't have been negotiating when a number of our leaders and political prisoners were still imprisoned. That the state of emergency had to be lifted, you know, and such things. There were a number of preconditions to make it possible for all parties. And from our side, we were, of course, also concerned about the ANC, that the ANC must be able to operate freely, must be able to consult with the masses freely. And we didn't want the negotiations to be conducted in a manner where there would be suspicion about what is being discussed. So we wanted openness. And that is why the the negotiations, both CODESA 1, CODESA 2, the multi-party negotiations, were conducted in the open. I don't know if you you recall, Mike, that uh, those negotiations were open to any observer. Anybody could come there, any journalist, in fact, any member of the public could come into the room, sit and and listen to what was being discussed by the negotiators. Uh, The apartheid regime, uh, in an attempt to isolate the liberation movement and the ANC in particular, said that all political parties must have an equal say at the negotiating table. So they wanted all of the political parties from the Bantustans to be at the negotiating table. And of course, uh, uh, we had thought that that didn't make any sense as such. The negotiation should be on the one side, the liberation movement represented by the ANC, and on the other side, it should be uh, the apartheid regime. Uh, So in the end, uh, uh, we ended up having about 20 or so political parties around the table, all the Bantustan parties, those that were collaborating with the regime, the parties from the tricameral parliament. But in essence, the actual negotiations took place between the ANC and the apartheid regime, and the rest of them understood it as such. So you had you had those who were on the side of the regime and those who were on the side of the ANC, and then you had, in reality, it became a two-sided table between the apartheid regime because you couldn't talk settlement with a party in the tricameral parliament that didn't have any power at all. What were what what did we need them to settle for? For what? You know? So it didn't happen in that way. And so the negotiations begin. What what would you say were the most intractable issues, you know, that 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 of that preoccupied the negotiators? At the start of the negotiations, Mike, was about the the ending of apartheid, the destruction of apartheid, the dismantling of apartheid on the one side, and in its place, establishing one person, one rule in a united, democratic, non-racial South Africa. That was the core what we were trying to achieve. And when you say one person, one vote, Uh, of equal value. We were actually talking about majority rule. There should be nothing less than majority rule. In a a democratic system, 
whatever the majority of the voters want should be the decision at the end of the day. So that was one of the most difficult things that we had because the apartheid regime and and, uh, the white minority wanted to have some kind of protection for, for, for the white minority. They didn't want there to be a situation that whites and blacks, the votes of whites and blacks would be counted in an equal manner. I mean, everybody's votes would be equal. They said, what would happen to us? You know, uh, we have insecurities, you know, blacks are going to take all our things, et cetera, et cetera. So we must have minority protection. And they wanted all sorts of things in order to have minority protection. And that was one of the most intractable things that you had. The other, the other big thing from the side of the liberation movement was that we wanted to replace the apartheid system with a new democratic system in which never again would it be possible for minority rule to emerge. Never again will you have, can you possibly have a situation where you have fascism and where you have uh, where you have the majority of South Africans being denied the law, that the law is not for them, the law is only for white people. You're never ever going to want to have that kind of thing. So that was a very important thing, that, that our constitution must entrench a freedom for all forever. It was a very big thing. Now, under apartheid, for example, you had a situation where... Uh, Uh, human rights didn't apply to everybody. So whites had the right to move around wherever they want to. Blacks didn't have a right to move around freely. Or, for example, when you talk about the issue of property, that uh, black people did not have the right to own property. And if black people did own property, the law did not apply to them. The government could come and take the property away without even giving notice, without a hearing, without going to court, without, without compensation or anything of that sort. And you had, in the 80s and the 70s, we witnessed large-scale forced removals of people, where black people were just rounded up in the middle of the night, loaded up in trucks and removed from the land which belonged to them and dumped into Bantustans. And so we were saying, never again, should you have a situation where somebody's things can just be taken away from them without anything, without uh, any kind of rule of law applying to them. So those were some of the things. And then, of course, the Bill of Rights was important. That apartheid was all about a denial of human rights. So freedom should be about an entrenchment of human rights. And so the Bill of Rights was an important element of our constitution. That is why it is highly protected. It's not easy to change the Bill of Rights because these are rights. Since the the, 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 the uh, uh, invasion of South Africa by the colonialists over 300 years ago, uh, rights were denied. And now those rights must be entrenched. So the Bill of Rights was actually very, very, very important for us that it shouldn't, they should, it should not allow discrimination on any basis whatsoever. And then the other thing 
that uh, that we wanted the constitution to be adapted to the realities of South Africa, because we were not drawing up a constitution for Canada or for Australia or for Egypt. We were drawing up a constitution for South Africa. And in South Africa, we needed transformation. We needed to redress the wrongs of the past. And therefore, the constitution should not stand in the way of things, for example, like employment equity, affirmative action. In fact, the constitution should require everybody to promote equality and to ensure that, for example, when it comes to public uh, institutions, that they are representative broadly of the demographies in South Africa. Then the constitution was, must also enable the promotion and the advancement of women. Because the people who were most oppressed under apartheid were the women. And so the constitution said special measures must be taken, even if it looks undemocratic, but special measures are needed to ensure that women can advance. And, uh, you know, at, at the time, uh, 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 Mike, when you and I were young, you didn't know of an African woman chartered accountant. I don't know if you knew of any, you know. Uh, there was no such thing, you know. So you needed special measures to ensure that, that, uh, that, uh, that because women were so oppressed in the past that the advancement of women is encouraged. Mm. Now, earlier on, you you characterized the the the, the negotiations or or or, or, the, or the or the separation or division um, at the negotiating table between the liberation movement and the apartheid government, and you said the apartheid government had was negotiating a surrender essentially of 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 the ideology and of power you know in 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 the country now if you look at the criticism that is leveled at the at the constitution nowadays you know people are saying that this was a compromise that's why they they feel that the 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 constitution is not delivering what the majority of people had expected it to um what what is your view to that yeah let let me talk a little bit about question of compromise. But before I say that, I've, I've been reading quite a lot about whether it, recently in the media, you know, about whether the constitution has delivered, whether it has lived up to its expectations, that many people's lives have not changed. We still have a huge inequality in this country between the rich and the poor. And uh, for many people, they still don't have houses, etc., etc. And we have we, we have such a large proportion of unemployed youth in this country, which is a shame. Now, I think that it is, it is in a sense, uh, uh, an easy way out to say it is the constitution that has not delivered. We voted for governments, government after government, every five years since 1994. We pay those government taxes. And we expect the governments and the public service to, to do the delivery. That's where the delivery happens. The constitution enables them to do that sort of thing. And so I think you should not 
we, we should be careful about saying it's a constitution that has not created jobs because constitution, uh, constitution is really there to say these are the rules. Uh, they're not there to actually manage uh, society any more than that is concerned. On the question of compromise, uh, yes, there is one compromise which we had made. And that was the compromise to create a government of national unity. We, we were finding in the 90s that the regime was beginning to crumble. And you ran the risk of everything becoming completely chaotic because the national party itself as a political party was imploding and white minority rule was imploding and falling apart. So you needed to, ha- we, 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 we reached a point where we thought if we don't speed up the first democratic elections, we may end up with just utter chaos. And in order to speed it up, uh, the only way to do it was to, was to create uh, what was called a government of national unity. And that government of national unity, what it said is that, okay, the party that wins the elections can form the government. Uh, but in the cabinet, even the, par- the a party that has lost the elections, the second biggest party, it should be given some seats in, uh, in, uh, in the cabinet and it should be given a second, there should be two deputy presidents, it should be given a second deputy president. That's how the Clerk in 1994 became the second deputy president and a few national party members became members of cabinet. That was, we didn't want that, but that was a compromise that was made. It lasted from 1994 to 1996. It was not a compromise that affected the Constitutional Assembly because the Constitutional Assembly was a sovereign body. It worked outside of cabinet. It worked on its own. We drafted the constitution in the Constitutional Assembly, not with the permission of cabinet at all, because those 400 members were elected directly by the public to to write the constitution. And it ended the the National Party in government, the government of national unity ended in 1996. There is no permanent uh, uh, compromise in the constitution at all. In fact, it is one of the most revolutionary cons- constitutions you can find, especially if you take the trouble to read the Bill of Rights very carefully, you will find the deep transformative nature of the constitution. Okay, just, just one, la- one last point uh, before, before we run out of time. Every time people talk about, people are unhappy, you know, they will tend to say, let's amend the constitution, let's amend section whatever of the constitution. Uh, is it a, a good thing or a bad thing to want to amend the constitution when we are unhappy? Look, I, I, firstly, you know, uh, amending the constitution is not necessarily an evil thing and it's not necessarily a sin. Let's get that out of the way because all constitutions need updating, you know, as time goes on. And you may have thought that the constitution, a certain provision of the constitution will work out in a certain way, but society changes and the interests of society changes, then you change. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. But whenever there's a failure of the administration, 
when government doesn't do its job and ministers don't do their work, you can't then blame it on the constitution. I mean, how many ministers and government departments have the money? You know, our national budget is almost two trillion rands. We as the public give the government two trillion rands to do all the work that needs to be done. That's a lot of money. And many government departments don't use that money in an efficient way. So you can't now say you're going to change the constitution because changing the constitution will not solve that problem. You must solve the problem where it is. In fact, it could make the problem even worse as such. Um, There is nothing in the constitution that prevents uh, uh, government from doing the things that needs to be done to improve the lives of people in this country. Absolutely nothing. Well, folks, uh, that's where we wrap it up here on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly for this week. Uh, and we'd like to thank our guest for this week, long-standing anti-apartheid activist and former Minister of Constitutional Development in the Nelson Mandela administration, Mohamed Fali Musa. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. And by the way, for a podcast of this conversation, you can go to Iono FM, Spotify, Google Podcast. Apple Podcast or wherever you prefer to source your podcasts. Until next time, do remember to stay safe, sanitize, wear the mask and avoid crowded places. I'm Mike Siluma signing off.